So Tim Scott is running for president, but it doesn't really seem like he's that serious of a contender against Donald Trump. What do you find interesting about him? Why did you decide to write a profile? I think for anybody who runs for president in a serious manner, like they have packs wanting for them, they can attract crowds, they can tell us something about where the country is and the ways the country is changing. And with Tim Scott, I think he's a really great example of it because he offers his uh, supporters this semblance of hope. And that hope has to do with his status and his ability to be successful as a Black person and to also adhere to uh, conservative values. That's my colleague Robert Samuels. This week, he wrote a piece for The New Yorker about Tim Scott of South Carolina, who was a 2024 presidential candidate and the only Black Republican in the Senate. As Samuels puts it in his piece... For a certain kind of white Republican voter, Scott's political career represents an escape valve in a society pressurized by its racist past. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. There's a large conversation in this country about whether the nature of Republican politics juxtaposes the idea that Everyone in this country, whether they're black or white, can do well. So whether a person can pick themselves up by their bootstraps or whether there are larger systemic challenges that might be able to preclude someone, even if they're talented, from being able to achieve everything they want to achieve. Uh, Tim Scott's presidential campaign, much like a lot of politics, is about finding evidence to justify the idea that the things that Republicans believe in are not opposite to the ideas that the American dream can be achieved by anyone. So what kind of evidence does he use to support that? He talks about uh, there being a Black president. Uh, He talks about the fact that you see uh, more Black senators in the U.S. Senate than ever before. But one of the examples that I thought was really interesting takes place at his high school, Arby Stahl High School in North Charleston, South Carolina. And there was a race riot, he says. There was a fight between blacks and whites uh, that really tore apart the high school. But the takeaway from that, according to the story that Scott tells, is that those same students four years later, were willing to elect him as student government president. And that, for him, helps to show how racial progress happens in this country. So he was able to single-handedly bring them together? I mean, what, what kind of happened in those four years, based on what you were able to report out? <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, Tim Scott graduated high school in 1983, which prompted me to wonder why there was a race riot at a (laughs) high school in 1978, right? And so there was that question. There was the question of what kind of progress had been made within the high school within those five years. And then I had this other lingering question was that if there's a marker of continual racial progress in this country. And in Scott's depiction of how 
discrimination has evaporated and how systemic racism has evaporated over time, it would beg one to wonder, what's the school like today? Do Blacks and whites get along? Are they an integrated school still today? And so I had a bunch of questions that I was trying to figure out. So um, where did um, your reporting take you next? So uh, Arby Stahl High School had integrated in 1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's more than 15 years after Brown v. Board of Education. And uh, South Carolina had been one of the last states to integrate its schools, to have total integration within its schools. And so in 1970, there were fights between Blacks and whites all the time, as both racial groups essentially tried to fight for territory within that school system, within that high school. And so um, I started to look at old yearbooks, and I tried to find people who had gone to Arby Stahl High School before, during, and after Tim Scott. And one of the first people who I spoke with was a woman named Karen Cape Gibson. Now, Mrs. Gibson, back in those days when Tim Scott was going to Arby Stahl High School, everyone knew her as Miss Cabe, uh, but he refers to her as one of his favorite teachers. She taught him about government and she ran the student government. And so I wanted to talk with her to see if she could help illuminate how the school had changed over a period of time and what she remembered about a young Tim Scott. And that's when things really began to get interesting for me. So uh, it turns out that Tim Scott he doesn't mention this on the trail, he was not the first Black president of the high school. Uh, And I found her, and the first Black president of the high school (laughs) is a lawyer named Donna McQueen. And Donna McQueen, uh, she's the class of 1976 at Stahl High School. And she talks about feeling really surprised when her white classmates elected her to be student president. Now, Miss Cabe, Miss Gibson, who is also one of her teachers, she used to tell Black students at the time that at this point in our history, all of y'all can't run for office. Uh, you should pick someone who you want to support and then consolidate your votes so that person has a block of votes. <laughs> and so that's what the Black students started to do, not just for student government president, but for homecoming queen and other things that were school-wide positions. So this strategy becomes a part of being Black at Stahl High School, and Donna McQueen becomes their first president. And a short time after she becomes president, there was this cross-burning. And at that time, uh, Donna McQueen was told maybe you should stay home from school because we had this incident. And Donna McQueen, who, like many Black students at the time, felt like they had to be representatives of their race, decided she had to go to school that day. So when she thought about being student government president, it was talking about race and having countywide summits that looked at systemic oppression. That's what it meant to be the Black president of Stahl High School at that time. When Tim Scott becomes president seven years later, it's a very different school. 
And a part of the reason has to do with white flight patterns. So there are now more Black students uh, than there were when Donna McQueen was there. They're closer to being evenly split, 50-50. But Tim Scott, he's a different kind of guy. According to the students that we spoke to, he does not feel obligation to sit in the Black section of the cafeteria. Uh, He does not rely on consolidating votes. He's known as being sort of soft-spoken, well-liked, a fondness for making speeches. And while Donna McQueen had sort of all these ideas about helping to eradicate prejudice, uh, when Tim Scott runs for president, he guts up in front of the student body and earns votes by making jokes. He says, lunchtime's too short, and as president, I will make lunchtime longer, and things like that. And so he wins this popularity contest. And people who went to school with Tim Scott would say that, yeah, this was sort of a marker of progress. But the fighting between races that existed before Tim Scott became president of that high school existed after Tim Scott became president. They continue to happen until there are virtually no white students who go to Stahl High School. It has gone from being an all-white school to being an integrated school to being an all-Black school and now a school that's mostly Black and Latino. Many of those families are undocumented. And in South Carolina, being undocumented means you can't get a driver's license. It means you can't get full in-state tuition for if you go to college. And because you can't do that, that means you can't dual enroll in college classes while you're in high school. So the ideas of what success can be have greatly diminished in that high school. It's interesting. So, I mean, what do you think that the listeners should take from the story? And what did you take from it as a reporter? I mean, I'm wondering whether, I mean, do you get the sense that Scott is sort of glossing over the details here in order to tell a story that will appeal to voters? Or do you think that he is kind of out of touch about what it means to triumph over racism, given that this is the example that he's using um, and that the school seemingly hasn't triumphed, given everything that you've talked about, what it's like in the present day? Yeah, I think Tim Scott represents a philosophy in this country. And that philosophy is that even though you've been discriminated against, America is not a racist country, because look at my journey. It's hard for me to believe, based on all the reporting, that that is solely a political calculus, right? That's a belief that he has that everybody wants to believe. And I think what thinking about the fullness and the entire story of Stahl High School helps to illustrate is when you look at a single story, you could distort and obscure the entire picture. And so if you want to have a conversation about how the loom of systemic racism impacts every single body, then it's helpful to consider the fact that his high school that had these moments of triumph has progressed in this way. And that is a fundamental story about how America is progressing. What is his record in South Carolina? I mean, you know, he's the only Black Republican in the Senate right now, right? Yeah. So in South Carolina, he's fairly well-liked. You know, 
Democrats don't like him, don't like his politics, uh, but that's politics. Even the Democrats who didn't like him, they did appreciate the idea that he comes from South Carolina and that he's a hometown boy done good. That's a phrase that I heard a lot. His record as a senator doesn't have a lot to do with South Carolina. He'll talk to you about uh, helping to rewrite tax laws, which he's very proud about. Uh, he has really in-depth conversations with voters about things like aging and Alzheimer's disease because he's on one of those committees. Uh, some of the things that he's most known for or most outstanding um, are some of the things he doesn't really talk about on the campaign trail. The first is his working relationship with Donald Trump to reduce uh, criminal sentences for nonviolent offenders in federal prison, the First Step Act. Um, now that the tides have changed and uh, Republicans are more interested in talking about being tough on crime, you don't hear Tim Scott talk about that as often. Uh, he also tried pushing police reform uh, through the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in a softer way than Democrats wanted, but he did try to do it. Uh, that's not something you hear him talk about a lot. But what the voters I spoke to said resonated was they liked the fact that he was a Black person who didn't paint himself as a victim and that they admired the fact that he had come from a state with its sordid racist history and could preach this gospel that Racism doesn't define the American experience. Um, that's more of what Tim Scott has been known for than the actual <laughs> runnings of legislation as a senator. I mean, do you think that this is something that he has always been beloved for in certain circles? Or do you think that it's more that he has emerged as like the perfect political figure for our moment, given that we're sort of like in the middle of a nationwide battle over how to, you know, understand American history, how to talk about racism in schools, you know, critical race theory, all this stuff? Like, do you think that that has been a, a boon for him to be the black Republican saying, you know, actually, you know, I don't see myself as a victim? Well, the impetus for that was not the current battle. It was the emergence of the first Black president of the United States. And Tim Scott served as a really impactful foil for the conservative movement, especially the Tea Party movement, to President Obama. You know, he was willing to talk about President Obama's Medicare program being a socialist program. He was willing to say that Democrats were bankrupting the country and to speak the language of many of the facets of the Tea Party movement. But it's also been there from his very political beginnings in the early 1990s when he decided he wanted to seek local office. Uh, the Republican Party at the time was so eager to put Tim Scott on the stage because he helped to show what they believed, which was that they thought they were a party that looked beyond race. So they could have a person like Tim Scott, even when acknowledging that in the past it would have been weird. During his time on the county council, there was a lawsuit from the Department of Justice that said, the way you elect county council people is racist because people who win the majority of votes in Black communities often do not get to be seated on the council. In fact, 26 of the last 29 people who had majority votes in Black communities did not win their elections. 
at that time, the Republican Party says, oh no, there's no racism here because Tim Scott's on the city council and he's Black. It didn't matter that the majority of Tim Scott's voters were white. I mean, how cynical do you think that he is? Or is he completely sincere? Like, I'm just trying to figure out how much, you know, he's playing to what the white conservative base wants to hear versus, you know, he's actually um, sort of believes everything that he's saying. I mean, he's a lawmaker and he's trying to secure votes from a party that can be very defensive about the ways people think they handle race. And so he speaks to those voters. I also think that in the liberal imagination, it's easy for them to construe Tim Scott's beliefs as just being a Black man who wants the attention or approval of white people. But I don't think that is actually a fair analysis for Tim Scott or of Black America. I think there are lots of Black people who believe that they need to put the idea of systemic racism in a box so they can succeed, that they don't want to think about it so much because it will depress them. And I think a part of that comes from Tim Scott's personal experience as well. You know, he talks a lot about his sordid relationship with his father, Ben Scott Sr. He was angry that he had come home from Vietnam and was still called the N-word, still blocked from going to places and feeling comfortable in South Carolina. And he thinks that bitterness enveloped him, right? So there's a very real part of Tim Scott who lives with the trauma of seeing racial bitterness. And I think that background helps understand why he speaks in such loving tones about his grandfather, Artis Ware, who was a Democrat, but who also would say to Tim Scott, you can be better or you can be bitter, but you can't be both. And I think having that message play in his head actually dictates a lot of politics, right? He said that his ultimate goal was to become vice president so he could tell good messages to people. So I think there is something that is very genuine about his discussions about how he handles race and racism. The larger question is whether he's short-sighted in his thinking. And I think a lot of the reporting, I mean, starting based at his high school, shows that, yes, he is. So do you think that Tim Scott talks about race and, you know, his triumph over racism in a way that feels different from the way that other Black Republicans we've seen have talked about it? Uh, I've reported on a number of Black Republicans over the years. And a part of the thing that I think he shares with Herman Cain mm -hmm. and Ben Carson, uh, a lesser extent with Colin Powell, is that, well, definitely in the case of comparing him with someone like Dr. Carson, is that both of them grew up poor both of them believed that their early academic failures were marks of feeling downtrodden and lost 
and they believed in the power of themselves, right? And because they had seen themselves succeed, they find it really hard to stomach when other Black people say, man, the system has made it really hard for me to succeed. When I had reported on Dr. Carson and his friendship with Clarence Thomas, a lot of people who are friends with both of them said that when they'd hang out, they'd try to outdo each other about poverty, about, you know, I, I, I had it worse off than you did. What's also true is whether or not someone like Senator Scott is eager to have a deep discussion that's not based on his own personal experience uh, to help prove the point. You know, he will say that systemic racism does not exist. He will also concede that it was really hard not having a Black father in his life without examining why that could have been. He'll talk about the discrimination that he felt in high school without thinking about the larger patterns of resegregation, the larger patterns of redlining. And I think that kind of, you know, we refer to it as sort of like the concave mirror of his experience, sometimes blocks him from seeing a larger picture, having a larger discussion that isn't based on the fact that he gets to hang out with Cory Booker and Raphael Warnock and he's seen President Obama. But I think what we can really do is to think about Tim Scott's candidacy and what he believes as an avenue of thinking about, one, how we handle the existence of race and racism, and two, how voters respond to people's messaging about it. It's undoubtedly clear that Republicans love the way Tim Scott talks about race. And a big part of it is that Tim Scott doesn't make them feel guilty. After the break, we're going to discuss how Tim Scott fits into the media narratives surrounding Black voters. You'll hear more from Robert Samuels, on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. And for those of you who wonder if it's possible for a broken kid and a broken home to rise beyond their circumstances, the answer is yes. And... For those of you who wonder if America is a racist country, take a look at how people come together. All of God's people come together. Black ones and white ones and red ones and brown ones working together. You know, obviously, Scott has been able to win a statewide election in in South Carolina. So this isn't a message that's solely appealing to white voters. But it also doesn't seem like there are a bunch of black Democrats who are vowing not to vote for Biden because they're diehard Tim Scott fans. Um, So I guess I'm I'm wondering what you've seen in terms of, you know, black voters, like if this is a message that's resonating with them, if they aren't already Republican and kind of going to be into Scott for other reasons. No, no. (laughs) I, I mean, Tim Scott's messaging around race offers very little that's distinct from other Republicans' messaging around race. Does it mean more coming from him, though? I don't think so. I think that's a cynical way to think about Black voters, right? And I think his success 
does not necessarily speak to the larger issues of unemployment in urban communities. It does not speak to the issues of police violence. And so I don't think that Tim Scott is attracting the eye of many Black Democrats. I'd also like to note that other people have tried this before and it hadn't worked. Uh, You had Ben Carson, who was beloved in Black communities. Uh, So many people had read his book. He had started reading libraries throughout the country. Black people became neurosurgeons because they saw his movie, right? And even with all that admiration for him as a legendary figure within the Black community, that did not translate to him getting support from Black voters because of his policies and because they felt his stances on racism were out of touch. So if Tim Scott's, I mean, if one of the things that makes him an appealing politician, you know, among Republicans is that he's able to help white Republican voters feel less guilty, why is it that, you know, his presidential campaign just hasn't really taken off at all? I think it would be good (laughs) if the biggest issue in your life was I feel really guilty, right? But it also goes to the idea that Tim Scott, as a candidate, is not offering much that's distinct from other Republican candidates, aside from the fact that he's a Black person who could take this message, right? So in a world in which you do not think race should be a determining factor or you want to believe that the country is a colorblind society, you might not want to vote for Tim Scott because he's Black. Also true that Donald Trump, who's done very little campaigning, still has a very strong presence within the Republican Party and is still very well-liked. It's hard to beat him no matter who you are. But I think one of the more interesting things that I noted was that most people who had gone to Tim Scott town halls, who I had spoken with, did not necessarily want Tim Scott to be president. A lot of them would love if he was vice president because they felt that politically, strategically, he could help dull the argument that Donald Trump, despite all the things that he has said, is a racist. So again, Tim Scott's presence helps to provide a sense of bomb for a Republican Party that really wants to move past this issue. I mean, you said earlier that Scott himself has said that he would like to be vice president. I mean, do you think that he specifically wants to be Trump's vice president? And have you seen, you know, over the course of his campaign, Scott sort of going out of his way not to define himself in opposition to Trump? I mean... Vice presidential politics is strange in (laughs) any case. I think who would want to run with Donald Trump when practically everybody who has been with Donald Trump is running away from Donald Trump? It will be an interesting question for lots of folks. I mean, he has treated Donald Trump very delicately. He's gone out of his way to say that he does not think Donald Trump is racist. In his books, he talks about the conversations that he had with Donald Trump where he felt that he was listened to when he explained his personal story and his interactions with race. Not a lot of people say Donald Trump is great at listening. So that's a little bit distinct. He has been asked 
very specifically if he'd be Donald Trump's vice president, even before he started seeking the candidacy. And he's never said no. So does that indicate to me that it's in play? I mean, he's certainly more amenable to it than Mike Pence or Chris Christie. I want to ask a little bit more about the um, the South Carolina Republican scene, mainly um, Nikki Haley. You know, what is her dynamic with Scott like? And you, you mentioned earlier that Scott hasn't really been able to differentiate himself from the other Republican candidates um, through his policies. And I'm wondering if he's been able to differentiate himself from Haley, because it kind of seems like Haley is, you know, when we talk about people who might be able to sort of break out. Yeah. So I've had the inkling from the beginning that when the dust settles, it will actually be a debate between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley because they're oppositional in a lot of ways. Um, And they can have the larger debate about whether the Republican needs to move towards sort of the kind of Bush-era conservatism as opposed to the MAGA movement. Um, So South Carolina is super interesting. It's super interesting that they've produced two possible candidates for president. Nikki Haley's path feels different uh, because she was the UN ambassador. She has a record to run on. She can talk about business development in South Carolina and the growth of South Carolina, which did happen under her tenure. Uh, She strikes more balanced ideas about abortion and is plain spoken in that she doesn't think it's a winning issue for the Republican Party, which none of her male opponents have been willing to say or demonstrate. And I think, you know, the fact that her bedside manner is more pleasant than Donald Trump, I think that's kind of fair to say, that she's able to help to satiate a lot of people's anxiety about, again, having this brash New Yorker who's under 91 indictments and caused so much panic and tumult over his four years. Uh, For those people who are concerned about that stuff, Nikki Haley seems like a great candidate. Uh, Tim Scott has not had the ability to be able to differentiate himself in the way Nikki Haley has because in terms of policymaking, he doesn't have that much to offer. He does not have a record of executive leadership aside from his insurance business in South Carolina. And Nikki Haley also has something to hold over Tim Scott, right? She did appoint him to be uh, the senator from South Carolina and replace Jim DeMint, which he did, which was really the beginning of his star turn. And so interpersonally, uh, from the reporting that I found, the two get along in 2016. They campaigned together to help support Marco Rubio, that didn't work out, but they sort of pitched themselves as the united colors of Benetton of the Republican Party. And so they do get along. You saw in the last debate, Tim Scott tried to take some shots at Nikki Haley, which didn't really land about uh, gas tax policy and curtains that were put in her office as UN ambassador. Uh, the election's not really going to hinge on gas tax policy and curtains. So it's been hard for him to land a punch with 
any other candidate, but it's really hard for him to land a punch on Nikki Haley. I'm curious about whether, um, you know, if part of Scott's appeal is that he's able to make white voters feel less guilty and he has this um, sort of story of triumph over racism that um, whether Haley is also able to do something similar, given that she's, you know, the daughter of Punjabi Sikh immigrants. You know, I was reading about how her dad, he's a biology professor and he was having trouble getting a job at a college because of his ethnicity. And so he ended up being hired at an HBCU. And so I'm wondering if... um. You have thoughts about how Haley has talked about race on the campaign trail and whether um, that's sort of another thing that she has over Scott. Nikki Haley is super interesting when you trace her political career. Because of her background, when she started in South Carolina politics, she had to justify herself a lot. You know, she had to talk about being a Christian a lot. On the trail, though, The distinction between Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, even though they're both people of color, is that Tim Scott sort of leans into his personal story as a way of proving the goodness of America, right? America can do for anyone what she has done for me. It's one of his favorite phrases, right? It's about his overcoming. And even if he does not mention his race explicitly, it's implicit in the message. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley's campaign is very different. It talks a lot about her experience in South Carolina, her wanting to play hardball with the Chinese based on her experience as the UN ambassador. And she does some of the America rah-rah stuff, which every lawmaker does. But it's not central to understanding her politics. Uh, Nikki Haley feels a lot more comfortable talking about policy matters than Tim Scott. It's often when a person asks a question about her heritage or her experience that she'll bring up, you know, the fact that she had grown up Sikh and how difficult it could be in South Carolina. But that's not usually what she does. The other thing that I think kind of distinguishes Haley from Scott in the discussion about race has to do with the ways in which they try to handle problems about race. So Tim Scott has a habit of minimizing them, even though I've been discriminated against America is not a racist country, right? Uh, Nikki Haley will talk with passion about the debates that they had over the Confederate flag, right? And the fact that she felt that people in South Carolina needed to confront the discomfort that people of color feel when they see this flag. And so she's asking for a sense of empathy and understanding that Tim Scott sort of does not. Part of the reason why, you know, I'm sort of curious to hear you talk about the ways in which, um, you know, Haley and Scott talk about race and make it a part of their platform. So there have been some news articles lately about how Biden is losing ground with black and Latino voters, particularly black men. And I'm wondering what you make of these concerns, like if if there's something that the Democratic Party should be worried about. And if, um, you know, the emergence of a candidate like Haley or like Scott could be something that shifts these trends even more in a certain direction. I'm laughing because I think a part of these concerns, it's long struck me as being a little bit ridiculous, but emblematic of something larger, right? I think um, 
Latino voters are very different from Black voters. They're a lot more diverse. They're a lot more dispersed in terms of places that they live and issues that they care about. Um, The discussion about Latino voters, I think, has some merit, a lot of merit. Uh, The conversations about Black voters, especially Black men, strike me as being kind of odd and predicated on a logic that I don't think people are really thinking through. I mean, there's been no true evidence to show that declines in Black male voter participation has led to any substantive change in any election. Georgia didn't become blue because Black male voters had not voted. So a part of this concern has been used as this like weird political tool to actually turn out votes, right? They encourage other people who are not Black men to turn out votes even more because they're concerned about Black male votes. And you've seen that in campaigns throughout the South over the past sort of eight years. Uh, The other thing that I think is strange about this is that we're really talking about a margin of error about a marginalized people. Um, And so it's easy to sort of pronounce the panic for a very jittery party like the Democratic Party who really wants to believe the sky is falling. And so every time they see a Black conservative on TV, they say, oh, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. All of a sudden, Black people are going to be Republicans, right? That panic, though, is based on, I think, a tacit admission that voter outreach and responsiveness to concerns of the Black community have not been what they should be. Right. And so yeah. perhaps the policy making that's coming out of the Democratic Party isn't truly speaking to the concerns of black people. Right. Yeah. And instead of having that conversation, it's very easy to say, well, these folks aren't turning out. So we might lose the election because it's on them. We're all old enough to remember when suddenly people thought because Kanye West was running for president, (laughs) black men voters would not vote for Joe Biden. Again, that sort of defies the logic of any voter. And I think it begs the question why people think so lowly of black men who can vote, having the ability to think about issues and policies and ultimately decide what candidate is best for them. Well, thank you so much. Robert Samuels is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his reporting on Tim Scott online now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.